0: Welcome back Beats by Social Work listeners. As always, we say that our goal is to bring you the most up-to-date education in the world of transplant and LVAD while also maintaining the human element. Today, we plan to bring you all of that and we have a very, very special guest, Nikki Montgomery from Madvocator Educational and Healthcare Advocacy Training. We heard Nikki speak at this year's SDSW conference, the Society for Transplant Social Workers, and we immediately both reached out to each other at the same time. What I must say, Nikki, is during the question and answering... Uh, from your presentation tiffany and i were texting one another we gotta get her on our podcast we gotta get her on our podcast and some of the people in our uh tables respectively were like can you get her on your podcast
1: <laughs> so we're very happy to have you here <laughs> well i'm excited to be here Yes, awesome yes And one of the things that we always like to do to start our shows is a quote. And so today's quote, actually, we stole from your website because we loved it so much. Um, And I'm so here for it. It's, sometimes you have to get a little mad to change the world. And the mission of MADvocator Educational and Healthcare Advocacy Training is to change the way people think and participate in healthcare and education. From advocacy curricula for families to consulting for organizations, we strive to improve equity, inclusion, and the quality of family engagement. Yes, that's all me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I love that. And so just a brief summary that we stole off of your website. Uh, Nikki Montgomery is the executive director of Madvocator Educational and Healthcare Advocacy Training. Her experiences as an educational psychologist, a communications expert, a patient advocate, and the parent of a child with complex healthcare and educational needs led her to create Madvocator. In addition to a graduate certificate in patient advocacy, for which her research was focused on increasing the capacity of parents of medically fragile children. Ms. Montgomery has a master's degree in educational psychology with thesis research on critical thinking and engagement for parents of children with disabilities. She served on the board of directors for University Hospital's Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital and currently serves on the Global Patient and Family Advisory Board for the Barrel Institute. So anything that you would like to add to that?
2: There's lots of involvement in healthcare there, you know. Um beyond the two organizations mentioned, I've done a lot of advocacy, a lot of you know, panels, a lot of patient engagement, a lot of these kinds of things. Um, but I really, really came into this when my son was born with a complex medical condition. He spent a lot of time in NICU, went home, he ended up having respiratory failure, um, came back into a PICU and he got a tracheostomy, a feeding tube, like lots of really complex medical equipment. And I started off being a really terrified mom who was trying to navigate healthcare. But in that process, I also saw that there were really, diff- there were huge differences in the way that I was treated um, and the way I saw other families treated. And a lot of that mm-hmm. was that I was treated better. I have a lot of layers of privilege here. I, um, you know, um, higher education, some engagement and understanding of advocacy in general. I, I grew up with a sister with a disability. And so I did understand a lot of how to navigate in healthcare. And Mm -hmm. that turned into me having some advantages. And I saw what happened when families didn't. So Mm. when families were frustrated and that frustration bubbled to the surface, I saw how the nurses would avoid their rooms. And they'd come hang out in our room. You know, like (laughs) um, I got good treatment but Mm -hmm. I saw what happened when families didn't have the skills to get that same kind of treatment. And it made me sad, but it also made me upset that I don't think that I deserve better treatment because I have these skills. It made me feel guilty Mm -hmm. too. Um, So, all of these feelings were coming together when I saw that other families didn't necessarily get that same benefit of the doubt and that same joy of the nurses wanting to work with them. And I really wanted to help families figure out how to do that more effectively. So that's what brought me into this, Um, took me through getting a patient advocacy certificate and really trying to crack the code of how to get families more involved so they could get the same kind of treatment that I was getting.
1: Yeah. I love that. It it's it's the hard truth I think sometimes mm-hmm. of the the families that are a little bit more frustrating. But yet recognizing that it's not necessarily that they're frustrating, it's that they don't know what's going on and they're scared. Yes. This is new. Usually yeah. when you are involved in healthcare, it's not something that you dreamed of getting into necessarily (laughs) no one grows up saying I want to have a medically complex condition or in our cases I always say this to my patient nobody dreams of growing up to be a transplant patient Mm -hmm. when they get older Mm -hmm. you know and so it's something that happens to them and so I just I love that you took it from the perspective of instead of well I'm so glad I'm getting this good care it's why isn't everybody right and just and to me
2: like I I always think it's important for healthcare providers to realize that this is your everyday job you come here it's Tuesday this is what you do when I'm in an ICU with my child this is a major event in my life it's a milestone Mm -hmm. on our highway you know and so Mm -hmm. these are some of the worst days the most complicated confusing moments of our lives when we're there Mm -hmm. and so knowing that that's the condition families are coming to you in, you have to have a lot of compassion to say, I'm not seeing them at their best right now. And to be quite honest, I have a lot of skill in advocacy, but if I bring my child into the hospital, the emergency department at 3 a.m., that means I'm probably 36 hours into no sleep, right? I'm probably Mm -hmm. really at my worst in terms of my ability to advocate too. So if you judge me based on that interaction, you're not gonna know the skill level I have and what I bring to it. And a lot of Mm -hmm. times we don't give families the opportunity to really step up and show what their capacity is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that you touch on something that I wanted to, to know about a little bit, you know, We heard you talk about it at SDSW as well, but kind of to that point, the language and how even sometimes the most educated people have the hardest time. Yes. And it's overwhelming and it's complex and as you said, you're 36 hours into it. I think that's what I love about healthcare and getting into healthcare is that I get to see people of all walks, of all spectrums mm-hmm. because healthcare isn't uh isn't biased. Medical conditions aren't biased. Uh yeah. they happen to anyone from your billionaire to your homeless individual and all in between. So To that point, can you talk a little bit more uh, about that in regards to how the language used and how the even most educated individuals and kind of navigating that when you're dealing with a situation?
2: So health literacy is a love of mine and really understanding how people understand. So, you know, my background is critical thinking and health literacy. So you can put anything in front of people. And depending on what their mental state is at that moment, they may or may not understand it. And so this is really the push toward making sure everything we put out, everything we put in front of patients is universally easy to understand. Because even your PhD should not have to engage their PhD in order to understand the information they put that you put in front of them. So I always say exactly. like... Yes, I have multi I have a couple master's degrees. Why do I have to use them to read your admissions packet though? Like this is not the level of skill I should have to bring to this part of the process. So I think it's important to remember that there are varying literacy levels and also that it makes it so much easier easier for everyone if you just give me something simple, if you just provide Mm -hmm. things in a way that it doesn't allow, it doesn't require me to bring every bit of mental processing that I have to this Mm -hmm. task of reading this admissions paperwork, you know, Um, and we have to start before we get to the door, start at the parking lot signs, start at the directions (laughs) inside, really thinking about the entirety of the patient experience from when they hit your doors to when they have that clinical encounter to when they exit. And making this as simple as possible. Because when you do that, when you really target it toward anyone, then you make the experience better for everyone.
0: Oh, that that's a beautiful way to encompass that too. And I'll add that your PhD may not even be in healthcare. So regardless right. of what your PhD or multiple master's degrees in, you are absolutely right that we shouldn't have to utilize that in a time of crisis or stress in order to be successful because no one exactly. would be able to. Absolutely. And we, it's interesting that you brought up health literacy, and that's one of the, the exciting parts of this conversation, because in one of our previous episodes, we talked a little bit about health literacy and social determinants of health going into that discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to bring that back up with you, um, that there's individual health literacy, but organizational. And can you share yeah. more about those two types and more specifically explain organizational health literacy?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, the initial definition of health literacy and Healthy People 2020 was, you know, the ability to find, understand, and use health information to make decisions. And it was very much focused on the individual. What is the individual's capacity? But then when they, you know, revised and made Healthy People 2030, they added this other component, which is organizational health literacy. And that is the, the ability to equitably engage patients in their ability to find, understand, and use health information. So it's not just about what the individual can do at the organizational level how are you making sure that their opportunities are equitable to do that so that means that you don't just get to put something out that has a reading level of college plus four years because you are then um preventing someone who does not have that level of education from finding understanding and using information so organizational health literacy says it's not just on the individual if you are going to serve these individuals you have to actually give them the capacity to do this and that's so important to me because it's looking at it in a systemic way, right? It's not just we lay it on you and if you're unhealthy and you don't understand, it's your fault. And that's the problem I see with people assessing health literacy. Like, let's just see where the patient's health literacy level is. It's not just about what their capacity is. It's about what you've done to enable them to actually engage Um, effectively. And patients cannot be equal partners in decision-making if they don't have the same access to the same kind of information and the same ability to understand it. I can't tell you what I want to do with my health condition and how I want to participate in my care plan if I don't have the right information and in a way that I can understand it. So this is the organizational call to break those barriers and to actually contribute to um, supporting patients regardless of the social determinants of health they come in with.
0: And so um, what are some ways that you've seen organizational health literacy be successful? I'm just going to throw that one in there.
2: So I have a great example from when I was working at a pediatric hospital and I was serving on the quality um, committee for the hospital. And one Mm -hmm. of the physicians who was leading that committee said, we're not going to use acronyms, period. Mm. Can you imagine, right? (laughs) Like- In the hospital setting, when we're talking to patients, we will never use acronyms. And Drew such a hard line on that. But that alone is one powerful statement because I know I've been in a hospital setting and the alphabet soup that's flying past me and I have, if I'm brave enough, I'll say, can you stop and tell me what that means? I don't know what this one is. Um, And even when people are trying to help patients advocate, they give them these giant glossaries like here, here's a list of all the acronyms you're going to encounter. That sounds nice, but you're giving me a, a language dictionary to go, you know, English to medical, and mm-hmm. and that doesn't facilitate my ease in that conversation. It doesn't. It means that I've got to look stuff up while you're still talking. Um, and this doesn't even account for language access for people who don't speak English as a first language. So the acronyms are even less meaningful in that context. So. Something like that, some powerful statement can really move health literacy forward and really move that access forward as well. So I think that's one of the ways that organizational health literacy can. Can come in and really make a change in the culture of a place because instead Mm -hmm. of, you know, throwing the alphabet at people, you're actually explaining what you mean. Um, And that changes the dynamic, it changes the dialogue, and it makes sure that both people understand it.
0: I appreciate you saying that because uh, one of the big acronyms that we see quite often is the LVAD, the Left Ventricular Assist Device. And so you're missing, what I'm hearing you say is that we're missing an educational opportunity by just eliminating that acronym. And instead of saying, you're going to go get an LVAD, you're going to get a VAD, we can say you're being evaluated for a left ventricular assist device. And what that means is X, Y, Z. And, but it's, it's offering that opportunity of repetition too.
2: Yes. And then you have the opportunity to educate them a little bit more about their bodies and how they work. And so then we get a picture in our mind, but Oh, that doesn't mean a lot to me, right? Like, so you're you're providing more meaning, more context, more understanding by just eliminating that acronym. Yes.
1: Yeah. One of the things you said too that got me thinking is um, if you're brave enough to tell them to to pause, and yeah. that's something that I try to always tell my patient. But I just got like a sparked idea as you said that of of having little stop signs in in a patient's room even. With a sign saying, it's okay to, to stop and, and pause and ask us to, because I always try to share that with patients, but I can imagine, okay, I'm the social worker coming in and saying, hey, don't don't feel like you can't tell the doctor to stop. We really do mean it, but yeah. I can imagine in the patient setting, sitting there, okay, someone told me I could, but like, mm, can I, should I? Well there's a lot
2: involved in that too So you're talking not just The bravery to say this is a doctor Who's an expert and maybe I should understand This and if I don't understand this do I want them To know I don't understand this and what are they going to Think about me so there's a whole train of thought Here and then you yeah. even have a cultural lens Of there are cultures that where they Don't feel it's okay to interrupt a doctor um, They don't feel it's okay To engage in that way and question A doctor about what they've said And do I want you to think less Of me because I don't understand Understand this? And will that turn into a stereotyping of me or my group or any of that? thing? So there's so there's so much depth to why people don't speak up. Um, so it does take a lot of courage. It takes courage and understanding that this is OK. And one of the things I teach patients is that you can say I have a concern or I'm not sure I understood that. And so from the patient side, you can actually speak up. But from the provider side, there's also many opportunities to say, Let, let's do a teach back here. You tell tell. tell me what I told you, let's talk about it. And to do that in a way that is kind and not challenging their intellect, but that is encouraging them to express what they know. So there's so many interpersonal dynamics that can come into play here. And courage is one of those characteristics that really does come in handy to have, because you really have to be be willing to jump out there and hope that the provider is going to listen and engage with you too. Mm
1: -hmm. So bias and how yeah. that impacts. So I want to I want to go there with you. Good. And and yeah. since you brought that up, I I think this is a perfect segue into it of, you know, bias impacts healthcare and healthcare outcomes. Yes. What can healthcare providers do about that? What what should they be learning about bias? What what are examples? I think that I, I wanna bring it up. It's a topic that people are afraid to bring up sometimes. And I think yeah. if we're afraid to do it, we don't, and that's not right either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's its own bias. Yeah, I think we have to you have to own it. That you live in a society that, that pushes
2: through ideas about different groups of people, and you're inevitably going to absorb some of those ideas. So this is not an, a matter of shame, but I also think very strongly that bias cannot be something you encounter for the, for the opportunity for personal growth. That's not what it's about. It's not about being a better person. It's about being a safe provider for everyone. And if you are being led by your bias, they are not safe with you. So Mm -hmm. that's the important piece to me, that it is a safety issue. It's not a character development issue. That bias Mm -hmm. is something that we all have to encounter because it does have a concrete impact on outcomes, a concrete impact on patient safety. When we look at the maternal mortality and infant mortality rate for Black women, and the Mm -hmm. research tells us so much of that is influenced by bias in the healthcare system, you are seeing the deadly impact of bias on patients. And so I think that we have to take it seriously. Like you would take a fall in a hospital. You're not going to let hand sanitizers drip on the floor in the hallway because Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) that that has a concrete risk to your patients. And we have to realize that bias has the same kind of concrete risk to patients. Absolutely.
1: I want to write that down and have that actually... (laughs) we We like to make quotes from our uh, our discussions and kind of take something that the the author or author or the uh, interviewee said and kind of put it on our social media and that I think is going to definitely be one mm-hmm. of them because bias is a safety issue yeah. and I think on on both sides of it because i I, I do I feel people try hard for their character
2: mm-hmm.
1: of it and then sometimes can go all the way over to another extreme mm-hmm. yes um is what i've seen honestly uh and and so it's like both the extremes versus looking at it from the actual context of of the word and what what it means and looking at it of truly the safety aspect of the patient and health outcomes for all individuals that come in absolutely i
2: think we can't mistake how important it is we see so much evidence of that And just coming Mm -hmm. into the healthcare setting is such a vulnerable position to be in in the first place. I have a problem, I have to hope that you take my problem seriously, listen to me, Um, listen to my experience of that problem and then help me to solve it. And you think that I'm a partner to help solve it, right? So if you have any biases along that stream of of what my capacity is to help solve my problems, to relay what my problems are, if you can't trust what I'm saying to you about my problems, all of this topples that chain of, of getting what I need. Mm-hmm. And then that makes me feel less safe. And I'm just going to say that um, people who are from groups that frequently experience bias know it mm-hmm. when we see it. And mm-hmm. so we know it when we feel it. And then if that trust gets dissolved in any way you're messing with continuity of care you're messing mm-hmm. with trust in the healthcare system as a whole you are generationally changing families and communities just by coming in and leading with your bias so this is a serious serious thing that we need to look at really in a in a global level but also at that individual level because there are so many patients who are in front of you who have learned over the course of their lives not to trust providers and not to trust people mm-hmm. yeah positions because they have experienced bias. This is not, you know, paranoia. It is the result of direct experience over the course of a lifetime.
0: Absolutely. I've
1: worked with some patients recently.
2: Yeah.
0: And I want to jump into with um, the intersectional identities that you brought up in your presentation. Can you, um, and this is coming from a selfish place, but I want to understand that better and what you mean by that. And um, so please. (laughs) If you don't mind.
2: Intersectionality is the legal term that came in um, from um, a, a professor called or named Kimberly Crenshaw. And she mm-hmm. came up with this idea of understanding the risks that per- certain populations face based on multiple identities. So if you are Black and female, you get the kind of bias people face when they're Black and then the kind that people face when they're female. And it's mm. not separate. They're combined and worse because mm. you have both of those experiences in the same body. So if you're adding black, female, disabled, overweight, any of the older, all of these different things that people um, disadvantage and you're combining them in the same body, then your experience is going to be exponentially different than someone who does not present with all of those combinations in their identity. So you're thinking Mm. like LGBTQ status, very, all of these different things that can layer in a person's identity that are gonna impact the way they're treated because, each of these identities experiences their own bias and negative outcomes and negative impacts. And then we're layering them all in the same body. So how, when I come into healthcare, am I going to be treated differently? And it's not just the one thing and the other thing separately. It's the combination together that can make my experience much different.
0: Now that makes perfect sense for me. And thank you for clarifying. I appreciate that so much. Um, can you, and I just want to jump in real quick again Um because I think that a lot of times, or at least I do, we learn from stories, right? Um, And examples. And I know that Tiffany has a question as well, and then I'll turn it over to her. But um, can you give an example of that you've observed where bias was blatant, but the people participating in that bias were not aware of it and what that looked like to you?
2: I can. There's this story that I tell. So I was having my annual physical with my primary care doctor. And she's, you know, going through my physical, listening to my back. And she says, can I ask you a question about your hair? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> this doesn't sound <laughs> good, but sure. Because what does this have to do with my physical? And she says- well, How so is that medically relevant? Under- <laughs> Hello. Yes. First question. And I'm like, okay, red flag number one, but let's just listen. Okay. So she says- I have this other patient and she came in to me and she has hair like yours, but her hair was really dusty and I feel like it wasn't clean. And she asked me for more allergy meds. And I felt like if she just washed her hair, she would be better off. So how do you wash your hair? So I'm like, well, shampoo and water is the thing I do, (laughs) you know, it's the same (laughs) as everyone else's. It's it's hair. You know, um, I wear my hair in locks and so people... It, it It's hair. It still does the same stuff. So um, when she asked me that question, she, you know, first of all, I'm like, oh my gosh. So she's had this other patient with the same hair as me and she's curious. But she said, I was not going to write a different prescription for allergy meds because all she needed to do was wash her hair. So in this scenario, I'm not the one who's experiencing the bias, right? But I'm hearing mm-hmm. about it. And I'm hearing from my provider that she looked at a patient, decided what her problem was without asking her because she's asking me how I wash my hair. She didn't ask her how she washed her hair. And she Mm -hmm. made a clinical decision based on that bias about her hair. So in this scenario, I'm really the outsider. This has all already happened, but I'm feeling for this woman who was walked in had a problem, not had it resolved. The doctor tells her, I'm not, I'm not gonna solve your problem. No, I'm not changing your prescription. So she never gets her problem solved. I don't know what happened to her, but I know for me, listening to that provider and hearing her make that kind of clinical judgment says to me, I can't trust this provider because she's made a clinical decision based on a bias. I never went back to that provider um this is a person i cannot trust to see me as a whole human being ask me the questions because she should have asked that other patient tell me about what your hair care regimen is because i think Sure, your hair may be holding some allergens and we can have this discussion. But to have not done that in that moment, to bring that to me in my primary care appointment, right? Because there's the other side of this that I'm naked under a paper gown and you're asking me this question. I can't just hop up and leave despite how uncomfortable this is, you know? So, no kidding. <laughs> um, so this combination, of, it was just a cluster of bad experiences, right? Oh. So it, it showed me though that this is a provider who is, who is being guided by her bias in some instances at least. And to me, I did not want to deal with that as a dynamic anymore. I felt put on the spot. I certainly felt like um, my physical is not your opportunity for cultural competency training. So don't just ask another black patient what you should do in this scenario. Like this is the wrong answer. So there was a lot going on there. But really, for me, it showed me that I could not trust this provider. And as you see the intersections here. So she's dealing with a patient who may have had less education. So she felt more comfortable asking me this question. Um, but mm-hmm. there was so much wrong with this. So, so this is one of those real life stories that happened in my life that really showed me how bias shows up in healthcare.
1: Wow. Uh, there's so many layers yeah. to that because <laughs> yeah. I just, I, uh, it, yeah, it kind of goes into uh, another bias as well. In that, I feel like, of, of as you said, that's not their opportunity for cultural competency. Yet, in their mind, they probably. Thought they were being culturally competent by asking (laughs) and just
2: right, like, and I'm like, no cultural competence training you've ever been to tells you to critique Black women's hair. Just know this, don't don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a thing. Um, (laughs) No, but there. I mean, this was all faux pas, beginning to end, right?
0: Much less bring it up to someone else. Yes
2: yeah exactly in terms of my ability to feel safe with that provider though i just did not i remember coming home from that encounter and being like i should have said more in that moment i was just stunned by it but when i got home i'm like i don't ever want to go back to that lady again like i just don't Mm -hmm. it didn't feel good to be put on the spot from my perspective and it definitely didn't feel good to know that she had disregarded the needs of another patient based on her judgment on that patient's hair so I, w- I was done. That was a relationship that could mm-hmm. not be saved. Yeah. Today.
1: Well, so now here's my question on that. I'm going to throw a curveball. Did you notify anyone at that, that clinic about that This encounter? question is excellent because how? So this is the one thing that I
2: always think about is that, no, we're not measuring the incidences of bias because you're not telling your patients how to do that. I didn't know what to do in that case. And in that system, who who was I going to call and say, hey, I had a really crappy experience with your physician? If you don't give patients the way to do it, it's not going to get done. So we know Mm -hmm. we're not measuring this because we're not providing an outlet Mm. for people to actually report those incidents. So no, I didn't tell anybody. I just stopped seeing the provider. So when we blame patients for the lack of continuity of care, for not coming back when they're supposed to, sometimes we need to realize patients have had a bad experience Experience and they are walking away from you. And it's not about their compliance. So in this case, yes. I may have looked non-compliant for my next appointment. But I left that provider and never went back. So there's so much, there's so much complexity to the decisions that patients are making and why that we can't assume noncompliance is the reason or an inability to understand what they have to do for their health. Sometimes it's that I had a bad experience with you or your receptionist or your nurse and I decided I'm not coming back there. And that's not non-compliance, that's self-protection.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I think that compliance aspect is something that we're always looking at what's the underlying thing, you know, and that compliance isn't always because of it's the patient wanting to. I'm very sad that they didn't do surveys or give you like have patient of, of office experience or anything like that uh, at that institution. I know that's something that might be frowned upon, but at my institution, if I hear about a patient, if they actually tell me, and that's, that goes back to that trust, right? And the patient being willing to trust you enough to talk about what happened of saying, hey, here is patient of office experiences, please call them and tell them because I don't want this happening to another person. But that goes into the bigger scheme of different healthcare systems work differently and, ah, I just, you got me fired up about that.
2: As a patient, you're going to fear Mm -hmm. retaliation, right? So what's going to happen if this goes somewhere that people know I complained, right? There's a lot of that. But I do think the power of social workers is that you all get to kind of step back and have that broader look at at patients' lives the way that you do. And so I think that's really important to think about, like that global approach to what does this patient need? And um, yeah, I think social work is so powerful in that domain that you all really get to have a broader look than just the clinical presentation.
0: Mm -hmm. And with that being said, uh, and I know that we have gotten completely off track, but I am here for it. I am just loving this dialogue. Um, But... What I want to jump in with is we, we actually talked in previous episodes on our podcast about compliance and assessing noncompliance, because mm-hmm. that's one of our roles in transplant is, are you going to be able to, to manage your medications? Are you going to be able to make it to doctor's appointments? Um, and that was one of the reasons we brought up yes. social determinants of health too, right? Is it a behavioral component to your noncompliance or is mm-hmm. there a barrier um, is there anything that you could add to that on how a social worker could imp- potentially improve their processes in, in assessing for compliance or things to be cognizant of in and how bias plays into it? Yeah. That?
2: I mean, I think it has, there's a huge opportunity for bias to play into this process, right? Because you mm-hmm. are guessing almost at someone's ability going forward to manage a need and then what if I don't have transportation? Does that mean I shouldn't get a transplant? So I'm mm-hmm. gonna die because of my social determinant of health on transportation? Like this is, that's terrifying to me because mm-hmm. we're it, people without opportunity then have less opportunity to live, you know? So right. I do think that we have to think about the kinds of supports they need to get to that level of health and level of um, compliance or engagement. So what do you need to get the right transportation? Can I help you get a bus pass? You know, what can I help you with that will facilitate bridging the gap between where you are and where you need to be in order to engage in this process? Because no, someone shouldn't be denied a transplant because they ride a bus. Right. Like that. It's terrifying to me that that, that kind of, pathway could, you're going to end up with people with more privilege, of course, being the ones who get Um, who get a transplant because they have all of those social determinants aligned. But what if I don't? So I think really thinking about bridging that gap with resources, with community programs, with community organizations who can meet a need that they're not able to meet themselves. I think that's the important piece there, that it's not just about what you have access to right now, but how can I get you access to the thing that's going to allow you to do this? Um, So I think that's a tough position because it does require you to make those kinds of hard decisions about patients and their capacity. But capacity mm-hmm. is not static. And capacity can be facilitated with the right resources.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. I think that's another quote that might end up on our social media. <laughs> Nikki, we're just going to hire you to be our social social media manager. We're just going to take all your one-liners. <laughs> oh, I love it.
1: <laughs> Except for by hired, uh, we are our not paying for the position because we are our own private entity. Uh, we are we are striving to be you when we grow up. Of creating our our own enterprise in a sense of we saw kind of in the same context that you have on your your website. There was a need that wasn't being yeah. met and doing something about it. And that's kind of there wasn't a podcast out there that talked about transplant social work and really bringing that community together and raising the the tough questions and the tough discussions that sometimes you can't have with your providers even as social workers you can only have it with other social workers and so we said let's let's make this podcast and we're doing it completely on our on our own separate from our entities Mm -hmm. um institutions all of that but by doing that, we get to have these type of conversations Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we get to learn from experts like yeah. you. I love what you're doing. And, I do. You know, thanks. It's, it's bringing the education to people. And so that's the other part of it. You know, education and universal language and how how what should we be doing? What can we be doing? Talk to us. Yeah. Tell us. Help us.
2: So when we're talking social determinants of health, we have to realize that education is one of those and that there are school systems that do not prepare people for success and understanding of their bodies. Of um, They don't necessarily prepare people to read well and understand well. So there are people who are already starting off in a hole when it comes to going into the healthcare system and managing their own health. So that education is so important. And I think working with people's primary providers, providing them with an educational pathway almost to say, here's the basic stuff that this patient needs to know about their body in order for them to get ready for this. I'm going to go over some of this, but I want you to reinforce this. And so I think there are opportunities to engage with people and their providers in a different way that reinforces the education they need to understand their bodies. Lots of us did not get great public school education or you know primary or K-12 education to really understand this stuff. And if it was a really long time ago, good luck on remembering (laughs) it all anyway. So, you know, just recognizing that people do not come with the same level of academic preparation, the same level of literacy. So all of those are going to be areas where you can push in and help support that need and provide them materials that they can... Go over with their primary care uh, physicians, go over with their families, and help the people around them also to understand because that caregiver connection is super important too. Um, You know, I'm living my life as a caregiver and my understanding of my son's needs is what is going to most impact his health. And so gathering a team and a coalition around that patient where possible for whomever they define as family and educating them all together Mm. can be really powerful in the support that they need to actually, you know, do what they have to do for their health. Oh, i
1: love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like I want you to talk to our providers. <laughs> More, <Yeah. so. laughs>
2: yeah. That's a tougher, that's a tougher one sometimes, right? Um, they, yeah. they have to be open to understanding all of this too. And again, this is life and death for patients. It's not just a, a quick decision of, no, they're not ready. Mm-hmm. They're not ready is a life and death decision there and so I think it is super important to be ready to push into providers and say I know you don't have a lot of time. Can you book an extra 15 minutes on your appointment? This is a thing that I didn't used to know I could ask for. If I really want to talk to my provider, I say, can you give me an extra 15 minutes? Can you give me an extra half hour? I can Mm. talk through that with my provider and give myself more time. And so providers can also suggest to patients, hey, I've got some information I want to go over with you. Let's book a double appointment so I have enough time to do that with you. Um, And I know Mm. that's hard. I know that the system presses in on them with time constraints. But what's the point here? The point is not to rush through appointments. The point is to improve patients' lives. And so let's get back to the real basics of why you're doing this work. And it's not just to get through the appointments. So how can we facilitate that? How can you engage other partners in that? And it doesn't all have to be provider time. But let's get creative about how we can engage other people in helping to educate patients, get them ready, and support their needs, too.
1: I have a question that is... Completely uh, turning a corner. Okay. Uh, so, bringing it back around though to transplant, to understanding, to biased, to all of this, the need for being registered a donor. Mm. So, and one of the things that we know is there's a lot of myths out there mm-hmm. still about registering being an organ yes. donor. And Unfortunately, there's a lot of myths um, within minority cultures uh-huh. as well. How can we be better at, at explaining that? Or how do we empower? I know uh, at one of the institutions I used to work at, there was actually a coalition that was awesome. And they, it was made up um, by a lot of people within the uh-huh. community specifically for raising awareness on being organ donors um, in, in minority cultures but I wanna hear from you.
2: This is a great question. And I think that those coalitions in the community are how you do it. You don't do it from the system level or the healthcare system level because that lack of trust that people have, again, it's well warranted. It would be foolish of black patients knowing the outcomes for black patients to walk in and be like, I totally trust you. No, this should not happen. They are they are making a sensible and, and life affirming decision to not trust, honestly. Mm-hmm. So those community coalitions where there are people who have received transplant and who have been donors, those voices are the ones that that need to be representing this issue. So, kind of inserting healthcare into that doesn't really help the problem because. People don't trust healthcare for good reason. So I think that that's where your grassroots organizing and supporting these kinds of coalitions and organizations, that's where you can have power, is support the people who are doing the work that you want done, but don't think that it's your job to co-opt that work and take over. Let them do it. They're doing it well and support them in doing it even better. So that's where I think the community really can lead in these processes, because people do have these experiences. Let their voices be amplified.
1: hmm
0: No, and I appreciate your affirming statements of the importance of grassroots organizations, Mm -hmm. because that's how a lot of change occurs. And with that being said, what, because I know that we are coming to the end of our episode and we want to be valuable of each of our time or cognizant of that, I should say, but what resources would you like to share with the audience if they want to learn more about health literacy that includes education, assessment tools, both for individual and organizational?
2: So I will say CDC has great information on health literacy and on plain language, and plain language is just one of those main tools to think about as you try to engage health literacy. So health literacy is the concept, plain language is the way to get there and to help patients achieve health literacy. And all of this goes into health equity. My ability to understand my health information helps me to help make um, better decisions, helps me to participate in the process, and that's where health equity is impacted by health literacy. So I think um, CDC plain Language tools are excellent. There are online trainings, there are guides for how to build materials there, Um, simple language, any of that. There's so much out there, but I think you really have to start with every patient facing material and then go beyond just your written materials and think about how you talk to patients, what you say to them, how you use language in those interactions. And I think. A lot of times people think of plain language as dumbing it down. And I think it's really important to reframe that as making language accessible for everyone. And so mm-hmm. when you think about it as an access issue and not a, an intellect issue, it does change the tone of that conversation, you know? Absolutely. Um, make it accessible to me and then I can engage with it and actually participate in my care. So I would say, you know, your big ones, NIH has materials, Joint Commission has materials on health literacy, CDC has materials on health literacy, including including how to assess your organizational health literacy there are lots of tools out there on how to assess individual health literacy but honestly i feel like that become that can be a mistake Because you can go down the path of looking at just the individual rather than the system that is providing this information for the individual. So if you're in a role where you could assess personal health literacy or organizational, I say lean toward organizational and make sure your organization is doing what they can do to empower and enable patients equitably versus looking at what patients can and cannot do.
1: Mm -hmm. Ah, Yeah, I'm going to be telling my docs about that later Uh, that, hey, we need to do this. So Nikki, where can people find you? So I have a feeling a lot of people are going to want to. Well, madvocator.org.
2: Yes, that's the easiest place to find me. I also, you know, in my daytime work, do um, work with Family Voices National, which is an organization that works um, on children with special health care needs and empowering and engaging their families in systemic change. So I do this work. And then, you know, you'll find me around lots of organizations <laughs> in a neighborhood near you, possibly, because I do a lot of advocacy work and really enjoy pushing into these communities where we can talk mm-hmm. about ideas like we're doing today and really talk about how we make that change beyond just the structure of the system. So I love being outside of the system a little bit and being able to have these conversations with no one affected. So
0: Likewise, nice. I think that's the win yes, yes. here. <laughs>
1: well, you know, we, yes. we're doing some advocacy work right now. We might have to loop you in off, offline okay. uh, to help good. us engage with being able to, to bring people more equitably uh, uh, in regards to getting on um, social security disability easier. Okay. And things of that nature. So yeah, we'll talk later about that one. Yes. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <Yes.
0: laughs> and then we always like to end the, the show with two questions. Okay. So the first question is, is there, and um, I stole this from another podcast and I am not ashamed to say it, um, <laughs> but what is something you wish that we would have
2: asked? I mean, I feel like we had such great conversations in multiple domains, I don't know that I I feel like we missed anything. I think we went around the world here um, in a short period of time. This was great. So I I have nothing to say there. I think I think you got all of bits and pieces of all the different domains here that I think are important to good. think about in your work. Yeah.
0: Good. Good. So the last question that we always ask is a Likert scale question. Um, so every time we have an episode, um, either between the two of us or um, with a guest we always gauge, um, how you're doing. So how you're doing as a person in your work and, and as a human, uh, as a person. And so, uh, kind of like a vital check at the doctor's office, right? We're going to check all of that before the doctor sees you, except in our case, we do it after. Um, <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, uh, though we are flying a little bit by the seat of our pants. And so Tiffany, are you going to come in here, jump in and save me? <laughs>
1: I'm, I, I will. Okay. Let's say. So we've been talking about safety and advocacy and plain language. So let's say on a scale of a hospital that has directions as soon as you come in of where you go to check in, where you go to your room, arrows left, right, as well as pictures and in multiple languages to showing up at a hospital that has no signs that you walk in the door and to even find the front desk you have to go through a Mm -hmm. maze where would you rate yourself today
2: hmm um i mean i'm i'm close to the the one with all the signs but you know all the signs plus do you have auditory prompts as well like let's make this all the way oh i like that okay yes (laughs) so i'm I'm going toward that end but i think let's even let's amp up the accessibility here you know let's amp up the the multimodal ways of communicating with patients too so we have to go beyond that visual and we have to go to what other accommodations can we um apply here too so i think that you know we're we're getting closer overall to understanding the different pieces that go into real access for patients. And really, I do love to think about it in terms of accessibility. I I grew up with a sister who used a wheelchair and had a disability. And then my son also has a wheelchair and a disability. So accessibility is my language and the way I see things. So the more mm-hmm. accessible we can make healthcare, including the language we use, the more we're going to get the involvement of the people we need. So I think I'm on that end, but let's add some auditory prompts and lights and some other stuff too. <laughs>
0: I love okay. it. Okay. Yes. All right, Tiffany, where are you?
1: You know, I think I'm at the the hospital that has signs, but they're not in um, language I can read. So I'd say that's where I'm. I'm I'm at that place where I'm I'm there. I'm at the hospital, and I see a person, but the the signs are are not in my language, so I don't know where I'm actually going. And there, the lights are very dim, so I can't really see uh, how to even get to the elevator. <laughs> Is where I'm at today.
0: And I will close this out with saying mine is I am at the uh, the hospital that Nikki mentioned. However, I showed up late. And so I am so overwhelmed by being late that I can't perceive all of the prompts and uh, the accessibility tools that are there. So I am my own worst enemy to today.
1: <laughs> and you're being blamed for
0: compliance oh, right. because of it, right? right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so we're just winning all around today. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Nikki, for joining us. This was an absolute honor and a privilege, uh, truly. And I am saying that from my heart. And um, so it was wonderful to get to meet you and to speak with you because I've been desperate to do it since we heard your presentation. So thank you so much. Yes.
1: Thank you for having me. It's
2: been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. This is one of our eligible episodes for CCTSW MCS credit. To receive Certificate of Listening confirming this credit, please visit our website blog and click the SurveyMonkey link. Powered by SurveyMonkey. This will open the post-show test. Just pass the test, be sure to include your name as you would like it to appear in your certificate, as well as an email address for us to send your Certificate of Listening.
0: Once you've completed this, either myself or Tiffany will review your answers and send your certificate to the email address you provided. Please allow five to seven business days for certification as we are both full-time transplant and MCS social workers. If you did not receive your certificate in seven days, please feel free to send us an email to beatsbysw at gmail.com.